Okay. Uh, if you would, please introduce yourself. Yeah, David. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I'm Nico Perino. I'm FIRE's Executive Vice President. have been at the organization for something like 12 years now. It was formerly known as the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education when it was founded in 1999, all the way up to 2022 last year when we expanded our mission to defend free speech rights for all Americans and changed our name to the Foundation for Individual Rights and expression. Wanted to keep that FIRE acronym, you know, mm-hmm. um, and not have to change our logo and our brand. And, uh, um, but for the past year or so, we've been exploring this world of defending free speech rights off campus, uh, and it's been busy, and we've grown quite considerably. Our organization now is, is 112 people, I think was what I just heard. Uh, wow. When I started, it was like 15. That was in 2012. Okay. And uh, I also host FIRE's podcast, so to speak, the free speech podcast. I've done that since April of 2016. Hard to believe it's been, what, what is that now? Seven years. We just recorded our 200th episode and uh, also made a documentary. Thank you, Dave. Dave. Uh, also made a documentary back in 2020 called uh, Mighty Ira, which was about the life and career of former ACLU executive director, Ira Glasser, focusing mostly on his on his free speech work and, and using the case of the neo-Nazis rallying in the town of Skokie in, the 19, in 1978 as or wanting to rally in the town of Skokie, I should say, they never ended up doing that. Uh, this is a town with six thousand Holocaust survivors. Uh, made it, you know, use that story as the through line. Why did these these Jewish advocates, in the case of Ira, who was a non-lawyer, and these Jewish lawyers defend the rights of neo-Nazis thirty years after the Holocaust, um, mm-hmm. rallying a town of Holocaust survivors? He's such an incredible figure in American history. You know, I saw him on Bill Maher, I think it was last year, and Maher asked him whether America is still a stalwart defender of free speech. And, and Glasser said, not as much. And they went on to discuss the state of the ACLU today. There was a leaked 2018 ACLU memo that said speech can, <clears throat> certain forms of speech can inflict serious harms, I believe was the quote, and impede progress toward equality. And th- this... Um, I suppose Mar was was interested in speaking to Glasser about whether or not he felt that perhaps even the ACLU is moving in a direction that is what you might call woke progressive. Um, it was yeah. an interesting conversation. Yeah, I mean, Glasser's an interesting guy. So maybe a little bit of backstory of how I met him. I mean, I met him at the funeral for Nat Hentoff. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Nat Hentoff was a famous civil libertarian in the 20th century. Um, also one of the foremost, if not the foremost jazz critics, he kind of invented mm-hmm. the idea of liner notes on records uh, and oh. was on the national board of the ACLU. He wrote for the Village Voice, you know, interviewed all sorts of prominent, you know, think of the big public intellectual you have today and like he would be among them. Um, but he was also a supporter of fires. And uh, I go to the funeral, which is, uh, on the Upper West Side in New York City, and two guys come up to me, and they say, "You're Nico Perino, and you you do what we used to do." And I said, "Well, who are you, and what did you used to do?" Uh, and one of them was Ira Glasser, and the other one was Norman Siegel, who was the former executive director of the New York Civil Liberties Union. And so I, you know, when you're hosting a podcast, I do what podcast hosts do. I invited Ira on the show to kind of tell his war stories. He retired in 2001, before kind of the big rise of the internet. So a lot of his history isn't out there. A lot of his stories isn't out there. Um, it's analog, not digital. And he's like, I've been retired for 16 years. This was in 2017. I don't, I might not remember much, but I'm happy to come on. 
so two and a half hours later, he's still talking. And I was like, I got to make a documentary about this guy. Because he told such vivid stories of why the kind of old school left defended free speech mm. and how how and why they did it in, in very difficult circumstances, such as when you have a group of neo-Nazis wanting to rally in a town of Holocaust survivors. But he also talks about the story of you know Eleanor Holmes Norton, who's a congresswoman. Uh, I'm in D.C. She's right down the street at the Capitol. Um, defending the rights of uh, racist segregationists to be able to speak and rent space. Uh, I believe it was in New York City or uh, across the river in, in New Jersey. Um, Eleanor Holmes Norton, a black woman, uh, defended um, their right to be able to hold uh, such an event. So um, there's, this, there's this long tradition of attorneys defending the rights of their enemies. Um, to uphold the principles, the neutral principles of a free society. And there is a concern now that as our society becomes more polarized and you might call those values neoliberal, I don't know. And there's it's been kind of a rejection of those values, not only on the left, but also on the right, um, whether people still be willing to do that. I mean, it's, a, it's the idea that also animates public defenders too, right? Like, you know, why do you have, why does the state attor- uh, appoint attorneys to represent people accused of the most heinous crimes, rape, murder, you have it. Um, it's because in order to help hold the fairness and justice of any system, you need to trust the outcome of the process. And um, the process therefore needs to be fair and that people deserve and, and must have the best representation possible to, so that they can present the best case for themselves as possible. It's one of the reasons you support free speech too. You'll never trust the outcome of any debate if you don't think the arguments on either side of it are able to be freely presented. Mm, that's kind of the um, John Milton's argument in Areopagitica where he says, you know, you can't come to the right conclusion if you don't have all of the different possible views, even the bad ones. How can you, how can you know, you know, how can you know what the truth is if you don't, if you, if some of the information is being kept from you, it's sort of the educational approach, I suppose you could call it. Well, yeah. And you know, this is the problem too, right? It's like John Milton. Areopagitica is one of the most flowery and beautiful treatises in support of free expression, free mm. publishing that, that exists out there. But he didn't really believe it for Catholics. <laughs> so it's like, it's like everyone has their free speech butt. Uh, Salman Rushdie called it the butt brigade. Uh, we sometimes internally at FIRE refer to them as the butt heads. I think we got a video coming out with the butt heads. Uh, mm-hmm. th- played with the idea of doing like a Beavis and butt head type thing. Like but where it's they like, draw the line, everyone has. Yeah. Them. Yeah. And you're seeing that a lot now with the Israel Hamas stuff. Like, you're seeing a lot of speech and expression that maybe cuts closer to the bone of unprotected speech in certain cases. So it's important that folks know, at least in the context of the First Amendment, like what are the exceptions to the First Amendment? You know, what is the standard for a true threat? What is the standard for incitement? What is the st- standard for defamation and libel um, and slander? Um, what is the standard for speech integral to c- criminal conduct? Um, what is the very, what is these sort of um, as concisely as you can? can you delineate what where is that line yeah well that's the challenge right and and you have different standards for um different exceptions right Mm -hmm. um you know you have actual malice in the defamation context you have to have incitement to imminent lawless action in the in the context of incitement and likely to cause the sort of lawless action right so uh you know the key case in that case is, is the brandenburg case from the 1960s in which um uh, a KKK leader, I believe, said he was going to take revengeance later. We we're going to hit the streets and take revengeance later. Well, 
that's not imminent when you're talking about later, right? Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of a vague allusion to potential violence in the future. Um, uh, you, you see this actually in the incitement context, the challenge in the Donald, Donald Trump Jan 6 stuff, right? Because mm-hmm. he told people to peacefully march to the Capitol, but a lot of people believe that there, there were like dog whistles and whatnot that would suggest that you know, what he was actually telling them to do is take down the Capitol. And you have to look at it from the contextual standpoint, which, you know, it's, it's hard to say someone explicitly calls for violence when they say to peacefully do something, but then you look at the entire context and it's so it's like it's like yeah. do you can you incorporate dog whistles for example into into any of these analysis and then true threats it's like you know uh threats of violence and likely the the likelihood that they'll actually be taken out targeted at an individual person mm-hmm. um what you're seeing a lot of now is uh in the in the um October 7th Israel Hamas debate is is stuff that's not targeted at a specific person but maybe like a category or group of people when we're talking about uh Israel supporters Zionist Jewish students um if you're talking in the campus context which makes a lot of these analyses more difficult and so um when you're analyzing these cases you need to have all the facts in front of you it's hard to just kind of paint with a broad brush stroke um what would be one of the cases that you've seen that is really hard to to view through a sort of simplistic black white lens very highly nuanced yeah so there was this case of a professor at the university of california davis who and you might have seen it she uh tweeted something out where she called for essentially the doxing of jewish journalists and their kids and Mm -hmm. then had some emojis with a with knives and blood Mm -hmm. and um extramural speech so it didn't happen in the context of her teaching um or uh, it didn't happen on campus it happened on twitter right um Mm -hmm. is it incitement is it targeted at a specific person is it imminent like is it going to happen right now Mm. is it a true threat like who's the target here like that would feel the threatening uh nature of that Mm. um and so and and but you also have the question of like what is the impact on campus? Um, if you're a Jewish student, maybe you're a Jewish student journalist, I don't know. Like, uh, does it create a hostile environment? And and some of that requires more information than you might get from just that tweet, right? Like you'd, you'd kind of have to understand the impact on campus. You'd have to understand what additional things uh, she or they have done or said that might inform that analysis. Um, but the, the lack of it being like targeted at a specific person makes it challenging to fit it in a specific exception to, for example, the First Amendment. And a lot of the standards surrounding free speech and academic freedom on campus give a large amount of leeway to folks making extramural statements that aren't core to their uh, discipline or their academic work. A common talking point is to say that the First Amendment only applies to government action. And so if mm-hmm. you have a case of a professor or a, a journalist um, making whatever kind of argument on on social media, First Amendment doesn't apply in any way, shape, or form. What do you say to that? Well, it's true that it doesn't apply, uh, right? The government, the, the First Amendment is a limitation on the government. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can have all of the free speech rights in the world, but if you live in a society where people don't feel free to be who they are and speak their minds, um, that poses a problem for a pluralistic democracy. So what we at FIRE advocate for is 
kind of an instinct within society where uh, our first instinct when we're confronted with speech that we might not like or that we disagree with isn't to find a way to shut up or censor or otherwise punish the speaker, but rather to to seek to understand and engage with them. Um, mm-hmm. And and this is a society that is okay with devil's advocacy and talking across lines of difference, um, thought experimentation. Greg Lukianoff, our president, likes to talk about you can you can judge the the health of a any culture's respect for free speech and open discourse by the idioms that it uses. For example, here in America, um, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. Uh, to each his own. It's a free country. These are things that um, at least I grew up with. I don't know if they're sayings that kids still use today, but they're very kind of free speech friendly idioms if you think mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. Um, and we live in a democratic republic where you and, and an immigrant nation where people from all different backgrounds and nations come to live and work and have a say in our democracy and that democracy can only work if we're talking to each other that's how we solve and come solve our problems and come to uh, any sort of conclusions and i and i think some of the frustration at least in part in the polarization that we see in america stems from the sense that people aren't fully able to contribute to that, not because they don't have a vote necessarily, but because they can't truly express their opinions and can contribute to the democratic discourse, right? Mm -hmm. Like you might, this gets back to what I was saying earlier, like you can trust the process, the democratic process, the democratic deliberations um, more if you feel like everyone had their say. Right. Uh, But if if folks don't feel like they've had their say, then they're not gonna trust the outcome. And you saw this with COVID, I believe. You saw a lot of folks who um, had contrarian at the time uh, opinions about whether schools should be closed or masking or vaccines um, and go on any social media platform. And if they weren't outright censoring you, they were stack, sticking a warning label on that. Social media, for better or worse, is the new public square. Um, and so decisions were made within the context of a debate where people didn't feel like they had their say. Um, they felt like the thumb on the scale from the elites or from those within authority control debate were, were tilting the scales in favor of one side of it. Um, so, uh, you know, social media companies can do that. They're private actors. But what are the downstream consequences for that? Is that really the culture you want to live in? And the, the same question can be ask, asked in the employment context. Now, there are certain organizations where it's like you have the job, right? And the job is very clear as to what its ethical guidelines are. So, for example, in journalism, um, if you're just like a straight news reporter, they'll take you off a beat, for example, if they, if they see that you've expressed publicly some sort of bias in one direction or another on the issue that you're covering. You can, right. That makes sense, right? You want readers to trust that the reporter is approaching the issue in an unbiased way. Right. Um, so, you know, you might not weigh in when that journalist is fired who you know, covers the police, but is um, doing nothing but like attending anti-police rallies and has said that the police should be abolished, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, the, in the opinion journalism context, these are professional opinion havers. So the, the idea of firing people for having an opinion seems to run contrary there. Uh, that but, resonates. <laughs> yeah, right. I figured it might resonate. Uh, but these are the sort of analyses that we at FIRE conduct we have morning meetings at like 9 30 every morning where we're looking not just at the legal cases that came through since the previous day but also the uh, non-legal cases kind of the ones that rate cultural questions and um, 
when you're dealing with culture, you're dealing with um, ambiguity and gray lines and and multiple different competing interests and factors. And so you want to talk them through. Um, but I think just, you know, to take a step back more broadly, we would be in a better place if people at least considered free speech, open inquiry, dialogue, talking across lines of difference as one of the calculations that they make when they decide to take an action in response to something someone says. Hmm. Yeah. Although, although the first amendment may not apply as a friend put it to me, uh, recently, it's the spirit of the First Amendment that that is that is drawn from uh, a philosophical lineage upon which we like to believe our nation is founded, and it's the philosophy that we're trying to embody. And so, although you may not be violating the First Amendment in the strictly legal sense, you're violating it in spirit and in philosophy. And it's it's a for those of us who believe that you know free speech and freedom of expression are deeply American principles that importantly as my friend pointed out, is part of what allows us to be diverse and multicultural because mm -hmm. you are, you're going to run up against other cultures and you're going to find things offensive that aren't necessarily considered offensive in those cultures, in those contexts, but we're all living here together. We're all kind of mashed up together and we need to have the ability to sort of say things that people might, I believe as Elon Musk recently put it, when, when people you don't like say things you don't like, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to tolerate people you don't like saying things you don't like. It's nobody wants to hear that, but that's what we have to do. And most especially our institutions that would be the places that are our universities and our, and, um, and in journalism and media, these are the places where, where the discourse is had. These are the places where the learning is done. And this is the place where perhaps the spirit of the first amendment, although it doesn't apply, but the spirit of it is should be held high, in a well, sense. My my friend uh, Brendan O'Neill, who's um, chief political writer over at Spiked in the UK, columnist. He has his own podcast. Um, likes to talk about how, yeah, the First Amendment's great. Nobody's going to say no. You're not going to see me argue against the First Amendment. But he argues that it works as a crutch for Americans. Right. It's like, well, this, we need to protect the speech because it's protected by the First Amendment, a.k.a. it's protected by the law. But why is the speech protected by the First Amendment? Like, what are those first principles that animate the First Amendment? What are those first principles that animate any support for free speech? And he, Brendan says that over in the UK, he and his colleagues need to flex that muscle more often than maybe we do here in the United States because they don't have a First Amendment to lean, lean on. And if you look at all the treatises that were written historically, many of them at least, about free thought and free inquiry and free speech, mentioned John Milton's Areopagitica, but John Stuart Mill's um, 1859 on liberty, in which, mm -hmm. you know, he's mostly contending with the conformity and orthodoxy of Victorian England. Uh, and not with the sort of legal questions. And... And he says, you could have all the law in the world, you know, protect free speech. Um, Sorry, I lost you there for a second. He's mostly what? He's mostly concerned with the culture of free expression. He's not concerned with the law mm. um, in writing on liberty. And, and that's because of the cultural conformity of Victorian England at the time. Um, so, uh, you know, these values of free expression run deeper and are more historical than the value, the legal values. And they, they must run through not just the legal institutions, but also the cultural ones as well, if you want a truly pluralistic society.
it seems as if England is in a different place these days. Yes, yes. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. Just recorded a podcast with Brendan uh, and uh, another, another lawyer, Mark Randazzo, where we talked about the state of free expression in Europe and the United States. I'm no expert on what's happening in Europe. Fire's mission is focused solely on the United States, although we do periodically comment on things happening abroad. We don't have any programs in support of um, defending the rights of those abroad. Got our hands full here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am f- familiar with some of the, the issues that they have in England. For example, they have these uh, – these, uh, like what is it called non-crime hate uh hate speech like or hate codes or something like that so it's like this this isn't an actual it's not an actual crime to say something hateful but it's a non-crime that is recorded by police in england and can be used in background checks if you're kind of looking to rent an apartment or buy a home or whatever um and there, there actually is a process of reforming that right now. But you, you saw it with uh, when the Queen died as well. You can't, <laughs> they were um, censoring people who were holding up signs, even blank signs, right? Um, wow. And, and you're seeing it right now with some of the Israel Hamas stuff, um, banning of certain speakers and protests and rallies and whatnot. Um, I think it was France that banned all pro-Palestinian rallies in that country. Um, never could happen here in the United States regardless of what you think of the, the content and the value of those rallies, uh, it would be clearly protected. Mm. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there have been some eyebrow-raising examples coming out of the UK recently. I've seen Constantine Kissin talking about it, and I've also saw, I spoke, I interviewed a young man who uh, was uh, a refugee uh, from Saudi Arabia, and he's an atheist, and he writes critical things about all religions, as some atheists do, mm-hmm. and but with particular focus on Islam, explaining that he thinks that it's not a scientific approach to, for understanding reality. Uh, and the police showed up at his door and paid him a little visit. Oh, really? And, yeah, and took his cell phone, and uh, he was an asylum seeker, so he he ended up being, he spent, I think, a night in jail, and when he got out, the place where they had set him up, he wasn't able to go back there. So then he was homeless for a period. And then he, he, long story short, he ended up getting into another um, shelter and he ended up, his asylum case was approved. But there was a period there where he was really worried because uh, is this going to affect my asylum case? Am I potentially going to be sent back to Saudi Arabia? Because my friends in Saudi Arabia tell me I'm, my social media activity is kind of known yeah, and I'm kind of famous back there, but not in a good way. And so, I don't want to go back. It could be, it could be very serious for me. And the guy, you know, I, I went and I looked through his posts. I mean, not that that. I mean, the content isn't. I mean, he should be able to say whatever he wants. To, but still, when you you go and you read it, and you're like, he's not even. Um, he's making rational arguments about how accurately certain Islamic tenets map onto reality he's coming at it from a perspective he's sort of like a like a i don't know like a christopher hitchens sam harris type attack yeah. on faith not he's not being uh, insulting well but anyway you know, religion religion is the first question right yeah. and if you can't question religion then what can you question that's mm-hmm. the, the, the whole why are we here and what is our purpose question right islam claims to have an answer for that okay let's interrogate it Christianity mm-hmm. has a, claims to have an answer for that. Let's interrogate it, right? The, the idea that 
we're going to either implicitly or explicitly implement these sort of blasphemy laws, which it sounds like, um, yeah. what was that? UK, that was England, you said? Yeah. 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 England is trying to, you know, it's just, it's, it's crazy. And I'm glad it all, it, it worked out for him, but you have to, you have to wonder if he's going to be so eager to comment in that way moving forward or yeah. folks who are familiar with his story who also live there. What is the chilling effect yeah, on exactly. their speech? as well that's one of the problems that you see with censorship um is it doesn't take a lot to shut people up you don't even need to punish them you just need to make an example out of someone right so you know i know your experience over at the seattle times like if you're a columnist over there how how are you going to engage with folks in your audience on social media platforms which Whatever. you, by the way, need to do to build a platform not only for yourself but also for the paper, right? To engage with your your readers. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, whoever ends up uh, replacing me, whoever fills those shoes, I, I I would imagine they're going to be quiet on social media, or or at least not say anything that could potentially be controversial, right? Yeah, so, so it'd be boring. And this is something Fire predicted. Um, David, I don't know how familiar you are with the whole kind of like campus deplatforming and disinvitations movements, but there was a period uh, in between like 2015 and 2018 where speakers were getting invited to campus uh, and then being disinvited when some people on or off campus dug up something that they said or, or didn't like about them and created a movement to have them disinvited. Mm. Uh, and we warned in 2015 and this would sometimes happen during like commencement addresses i think Bar bill maher you mentioned bill maher was uh, set to give one so at one of the university of california schools you know condoleezza rice and um you know, mainstream people right who you might mm -hmm. invite to give a commencement address you mm -hmm. know protests efforts to get them disinvited and in some cases they were we predicted that schools were just going to stop inviting in anyone who's interesting to give commencement addresses mm -hmm. and that has sort of borne out you don't see as many disinvitations anymore because you don't see interesting and somewhat controversial people or politicians in some cases invited to give commencement addresses. That's Why would you? It's not worth it. So in some cases they, they're in some schools, they're just having like administrators or the president of the university deliver these addresses. Just like, okay. <laughs> I would much rather listen to Bill Maher. Yeah. So or someone interesting. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know, but maybe it's because I have a, a small L libertarian streak in me where mm -hmm. I hold kind of a lot of contrary and personal political and ideological opinions. Like I, I just have never expected media or my university or anyone else to reflect my ideological or political points of view because it never has. Mm -hmm. Like I've just, um, but you at least expect them to allow a safe space, if you will, where you can have those views and express them freely. Yes, yes, absolutely, right. absolutely. But I think there is like there is a subset of people, if we're talking about the culture, who expect, you know, they have a Netflix subscription that, and and they're a progressive and trans rights activist that Dave Chappelle can't have a special on Netflix mm -hmm. that might be slightly critical of the trans rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, because I don't know, I guess the assumption is that all media must reflect my personal political point of view. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a boring world to live in. Who wants to live in that world? I don't, I don't. 
but I was a former, I am a former university lecturer of logic and debate. And uh, this was in, a, this was in <clears throat> Asia, uh, where in, in some parts of Asia, you can still find that uh, Hitler is viewed somewhat almost as a kind of Caesar by some people. It's just hmm. far away. We don't really relate to that history. We don't really know, but he's just some conqueror. And so I, I met more than one student who admired Hitler. And when I would try to engage them about this subject to see where is this coming from, they, they would just tell me things about, you know, well, he, he conquered a lot or, but there was, there was one occasion where the kid went right into him. I don't know where he had been exposed to this material. Well, online, I imagine, of course, but he went right into some little speech about the Jews and and of course you know perhaps some students some teachers would have uh, shut the kid down it was a debate class and we were supposed to be covering figures that we admired and this was his choice oh geez yeah and i was like oh my gosh and i and i didn't know if i should even uh like i in my mind i'm like should i even allow this this could potentially what if he makes a really good case to the mind of some of the other students listening mm-hmm. what if he ends up spreading the you know so this is this is my moment of like sunshine is the best disinfectant and well, yeah well i i i i just said look i um rather than shutting them down i said you know this thing you're saying about the jews where do you get this information from have you ever uh where you got this from the internet or something he's like yeah and i said well listen it's not that i'm rejecting the argument it's just that you haven't included any real support for the case that you're trying to make. I'd like you to just go back and try to buttress this with whatever you can. So in fact, I tried to help him. I was like steel manning his Mm -hmm. actually, which could have, I suppose it could have blown up in my face. But so he comes back the next week and he, and he hands in his, you know, his written argument. Um, and it's Anne Frank. Oh, wow. And I was like, wait a minute, what happened here? And he's like, well, I went and I was looking for arguments and I was searching Holocaust and then I clicked on images. Mm. I was like, oh, really? And that that changed your mind, did it? Yeah. He's like, yeah, I'd, I'd never seen some of those images. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. So in his case, sun, sunshine was the best disinfectant, just being exposed to more information. Um, yeah. Well, it's, you know, two thoughts about that. One, I, you know, I wonder if, there was that perception of Hitler in part because they just don't have the sort of Asia didn't have the sort of connection that America has with Europe. Right. And everything mm-hmm. that's happened there almost you might, might've almost think of of Hitler in that case as like Americans might've Genghis Khan, right. Who, you know, yeah, right. Murder and pillage. Right. But we don't have the same sort of connection with evil with Genghis Khan that we do uh, with Hitler. But the other thought is, you know, your approach to that situation is an approach is a pedagogical approach that will result in critical thinking and that will actually change people's minds perhaps right i i um One hopes. Have, yeah. yeah well well i mean and, and, and it's using the benjamin franklin tactic of just asking inquisitive questions that force people to investigate their own thoughts and beliefs much like a therapist would right mm-hmm. Like a therapist doesn't tell you what to believe. They just ask you questions that help you lead you on the path to a better mental state. Yeah. Uh, 
but I was, uh, I go back and forth with fire supporters quite regularly. They email me. Um, you sign up for fire's email list at thefire.org. Uh, you get a welcome series. It's written largely by me. Um, and at one point I asked people to share their thoughts on a couple of questions and talking about hate speech. And this, this one responder uh, told me a story. It compared kind of censorship to his dad's fight with dandelions, you know, those flowers that grow in your yard. Okay. It'll make sense in a sec. says, my father had a never-ending fight with these dandelions. And his solution to the dandelions was to just mow them over with the lawnmower. But a week or two would go by and the dandelions would pop back up. Um, mow them over again, they'd pop back up. His approach to dandelions wasn't to take them out at the root so they would never pop back up. It was just to cut them down so you wouldn't see it anymore. He said, I think about this in the context of censorship. Censorship is a blunt tool to shut people up, but it doesn't get to the root of their beliefs. It doesn't actually change their minds. Only dialogue, only talking across lines of difference, only pulling those beliefs up at the root like you might a dandelion would eliminate them. Censorship, therefore, is like breaking a thermometer. You might not know what the temperature is anymore, but it's still the temperature. You haven't changed anything, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought that was a very interesting, the dandelion analogy for like why your approach with that student who admired Hitler and had those beliefs about the Jews will result in lasting um, benefit and belief change for that person in a way that just shutting them down wouldn't have. And in fact, might have supercharged their belief in those sorts of things. Because right. then now there's, a, now there's this forbidden fruit, there's this forbidden knowledge mm -hmm. that someone won't even dare let me ask a question about. Yeah. It almost um, validates in a sense. Like, why does the yeah. teacher trying to, this, there must be something to this. Yes. That, that is make, it's sort of that, uh, I believe is there's like a, <clears throat> was it, um, who was it? Was it Christopher Hitchens? Someone who said that there, or, or was it, no, no, it was Ricky Gervais, I believe, who said that his moment of realization for him when he became an atheist was when his, his, he asked a question or something uh, about God and his brother chimed in saying, oh, don't you know, that's just, that's just some silly. And his mother was like, hey, stop that. Shh, shh, don't, don't. And he saw that. He saw that control and he was like, mm. and in that for him, that was his moment of like, okay, someone's trying to control what I can know here because obviously I'm not being told the full truth. That's what happens when you do that to people. Yeah. People see that and they, and they think, why are you trying to silence this? And then it's the Barbara Streisand effect. Sure. And then, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work. You mentioned earlier um, this effect in comedy and disinvitations from college campus you were a creative consultant on the 2015 film can we take a joke about censorship and stand-up comedy i was which was an interesting film uh it uses the comedian lenny bruce as kind of the through line to tell talk about the dangers of censoring comedians um right but he we the, he got the socrates uh he, he got what four months in a workhouse for quote corrupting the youth which is the which is the same thing that they that they charged Socrates with for, for the same thing, right? For asking questions that you're not supposed to, saying things you're not supposed to say. Yeah, he was brought up on charges all across the country and ultimately you know, killed himself, um, um, or at least overdosed. Um, you know, as a result, he just a, just a devastating spiral. Um, you know, he stopped kind of being the funny guy 
anymore and just had this fixation on all these persecutions of him across the country he'd get up on stage and start reading transcripts from the, the court and like trying to work as his own defense attorney and comedy clubs um, people were like this isn't funny but you could just tell the guy had been so beaten down by what happened to him and then of course the tragedy stuck but the documentary was interesting because it came out in 2015 and it's really about cancel culture right but we didn't have that phrase for it yet so we called it outrage culture at the time and then in the subsequent years you know you kind of got the cancel culture phrase um but really the first person to kind of blow the whistle on this was john ronson and in his book so you've been publicly shamed and he's featured in the documentary can we take a joke talking about it uh, a little bit in one of the some of the cases that he highlights um but yeah i was proud to have worked on that film mm. features Penn Jillette, gilbert gottfried the late Gil- Gil- gilbert gottfried adam carolla lisa lampanelli and uh, I, I think it was many ways ahead of its time an amazing film what's the what's the state of stand-up comedy today and is there such a thing as a joke that should be off limits yes jokes that aren't funny right <laughs> um you know that's the line that's the line uh and you'll hear this from comedians too that if i have heard that from comedians yeah yes yeah. if, if you can funny, take a works if it's not funny that's the standard and if you can take a very controversial or radioactive subject and get people to laugh about it there's you know even if they might not agree with the ultimate point or the punchline like there there's probably a kernel enough of a truth mm-hmm. otherwise it wouldn't work right mm-hmm. and so that's why some people refer to comedians as the truth tellers because they smuggle truth through comedy comedy yes. and laughter is a way to put your guard down yes and um the state of can't stand up comedy now i think it's better at least from a kind of free speech perspective than it was around 2016, 2017, 2018. Um, But when you had people like Chris Rock and and, um, Jerry Seinfeld saying they weren't going to do shows on college campuses. Um, Although you did have Andrew Schultz, a popular comedian who had his special he didn't ever revealed what streaming platform it was supposed to go on, but they didn't want it. It was too edgy. So he ended up releasing it on his own and I think making millions of dollars. I mean, that's, that's kind of where we're at right now. So the cancel culture and the, the kind of chilling effect that you've seen has led to all these other distribution methods to get your voice out there. Right. You have Andrew Schultz making millions of dollars releasing uh, his, his show on his own rather than through a streaming platform. You have all these people who are building livelihoods for themselves on Substack while the publishing, you know, while the uh, news, you know, established news media, as you know, is like self imploding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have publishing houses with the, all their new sensitivity readers and, 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 and requirements that if you write fiction, you need to like have the identity of the people that you are writing about um right in order to in order to publish it um and then just like this ultimate cowardice that comes when any sort of mob attacks a book and an author or a publisher um you, you even have petitions place i never forget there was a, like a petition going around to not have one of the big publishing houses pub uh publish uh amy amy coney barrett's um book she's a supreme court justice um to because, not publish it yeah, to not publish. They, they signed a big deal with her, Supreme Court Justice, newsworthy that she published her book. Uh, the members of the 
of the news of the publishing industry signed a petition to not publish the book because of reviews on abortion. It's like, what? 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 What is publishing if you can only publish books with one point of view? Right? Like that's I, just I, like I don't understand people who want to live in this world. Getting back to the, the point I was making. Justice. justice. I mean, yeah, no. whatever you. I mean, whatever you might think about the view, it's still, you, you would want to know it. This is sort of like the same argument that people would make about Donald Trump. And it's like, well, we should just silence it. And then the, the counterpoint would be, I, th I think we should probably hear what the president of the United States has to say, even if you don't like it. Yes. I yes. Mean. Yes. You know, I, I don't know. There's, there's this sort of status or victim. There's this sort of status that comes from, I don't know, exercising this sort of mob power um it maybe feels good and cathartic and like you're actually accomplishing something mm. um i, I, but, I spoke oh, sorry go ahead no 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 go ahead well i, I spoke to a guy he, he actually does uh analysis on sort of these mob events on social media and he saw what happened to me and we started having a conversation and he pointed out that it appeared that there was a a core a kernel perhaps uh, of of coordination and what happened to me because if you look you can see that a lot of the people who were coming after me they were like following each other mm. they were um using the same memes to when they were attacking me i was getting like death threats and stuff but some of them were using the same images and even the exact same comments they were making it was as if they were copy pasting it around each other now this is a very small subset and then everything on top of that was organic so you have and and he was explaining to me this is this is often the case you'll have these uh, these coordinated attacks, and it could be, you know, I suppose there could be a conspiratorial political agenda, but sometimes it's just for the sport of it. It's just like, let's, okay, let's take this person down, five people get together, 10 people. And then there's the organic part of it, of course. And a lot of these cancellations have that structure to them. Yeah. Well, it makes you makes you wonder whether we're fully equipped for this internet age and all the kind of mis and disinformation that might come and disinformation being like coordinated attacks that aren't actually representative of the beliefs of the actual of actual people um but maybe beliefs that are being reflected of a state state government um for example, like you, for example, you mean like things, manipulation by China or Russia, or China or Russia or, or, or someone else. Um, mm. I, I you tell that story about the student you had who uh, was maybe an admirer of Hitler, had these thoughts about Jews, but whose mind was changed by uh, seeing photos. Well, what do you do in a society where more and more of the photos that you're seeing? We saw this in after the Hamas attacks. Um, are being created by artificial intelligence and don't actually represent reality, and it's hard to tell the difference, mm -hmm. right? Um, I read this book by Peter Pomerantsev um, about contemporary Russia called "Nothing Is True and Everything Is Possible," um, and <laughs> and you might know more about this than, than than I would, but like he he talks about how the sense within within Russia is that. Yeah. You can never trust anyone because you can never trust what's what the truth is. Like you get all these messages and the zone is so flooded with bullshit. That right. It's hard to sort it out. And so you don't trust anything. And if you don't trust anything, then like, how do you win arguments? Because it can always, you know, the arguments can, 
the debate can always be dismissed as oh, mm-hmm. this is misinformation, this is different, this is fake, this is AI, exactly. right? You there's no there's no north star you can point to when trying to ground your arguments. I had an interesting conversation recently with the one of the co-founders of Samistat Online, uh, Yevgeny Simkin, who's talking about how it's hard for Westerners to even conceive of what it's like to be in Russia when, you know, over here, okay, you turn on Fox News, you don't like what they're saying, you change the channel, or what's more likely, you don't turn on Fox News in the first place if you're a Democrat. You just go to your other preferred source. In Russia, it's hard to imagine to living in a country where there is no other source to turn to. Mm-hmm. There is only there is only the Kremlin. There is only what they want you to know. And so the importance, his project is actually using technology to bring, to get through the firewall, to bring news from outlets that have been banned to places that have banned them. It's a brilliant project. So he's basically, he's he's the, the news version of Sunlight. Sunlight yeah. being the disinfectant and bringing people the information that they're not getting. And that, he says, sometimes when he talks to people in the West, they're like, oh, that's that's kind of interesting. But because it doesn't seem as revolutionary to us because we have all these other, you know, but when you're living in a North Korea or in Iran or in Russia and you, you get a, a reliable news source, you get or just any other news source, uh-huh. it is literally revolutionary. It's quite yeah. powerful. It's uh, Russia and North Korea I often cite to when talking about the importance of not just having laws on the books like a constitution that protects free speech because if you look at the constitutions of russia and north korea they have protections for free speech but you also need to have a legal system that enforces those and a culture culture that demands them uh, yeah. the learned hand in his famous 1944 speech in central park new york city uh, talked about the spirit of liberty which it lives in the hearts of men and women and when it dies there no law no rule no parchment can so much as save it uh, he talks about the spirit of liberty in, in short being a spirit that is not too sure it is right. Hmm. A spirit that is not too sure that it is right, right? And that's why we have free speech, because it's a sort of, sort of intellectual humility that we might not be right and that there's additional information that we can gather or alternative viewpoints that could sharpen or inform or change our minds. Um, and And so... Uh, I, I one time attended a speech by this evangelical pastor, Douglas Wilson, while I was in college. He came to visit Indiana University, where I was a student, who, uh, it sounds like you're familiar with Christopher Hitchens. He once went out on the road with Christopher Hitchens um, debating religion, uh, and it resulted in this documentary called Collision, which I recommend to everyone. I think you can find it on YouTube for free. I'm a huge Christopher Hitchens fan. Off to the side here, I've got a, a photo of Christopher Hitchens holding up a Johnny Walker Black, which is his drink of choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, champions. Yes. And so when Douglas Wilson was coming to Indiana University's campus, this was my opportunity to be his interlocutor, to be Christopher Hitchens. Christopher had just died, um, I believe, in December of the previous year, 2011. And I had not so much as shown up that I realized that this thing wasn't going to go as planned. Um, mm-hmm. Douglas Wilson, very evangelical, has strong views on gay marriage and much else. Uh, shouted down, protested, and there was at one point when he is um, engaging with the hecklers that he says, I always think I'm right, but I don't think I'm always right. I always think I'm right, but I don't think I'm always right. Mm -hmm. Those hecklers thought they were always right. They had no intellectual humility. They didn't occupy the spirit of liberty. 
Douglas Wilson, as much as I disagreed with him about almost everything, had came to the dis- debate and discussion from the spirit of liberty. Mm, the idea that I always think I'm right, but I don't think I'm always right. Is that and, what we've lost in, in America? Is that the problem that's facing us in American society today that we that we have uh, maybe even a, a, an entire generation that does? Or what? Or let me rephrase that. What What is the most significant challenge to free speech uh, today, whether it's on college campuses or in the media or elsewhere? If you had to, is it is it this cultural issue you're describing, or is it something else? Yeah, that's a good question, David. Um, I think the law is still strong right now, um, from a First Amendment perspective, but I do worry about younger generations' appreciation for free speech, and if that spirit of liberty wanes and that appreciation wanes. The law won't be maintained. These people will become judges and lawyers, and over time it will become eroded. Mm. So it, and, and that's part of the reason I made Mighty Ira. I'm a millennial. I'm 33 years old. I was worried that my generation's interest and understanding and appreciation for freedom of expression uh, wasn't there. And that they had forgotten the reasons, particularly my progressive and liberal friends. They'd forgotten the reasons that old school liberals and progressives, like Ira Glasser, like Norman Sewell, like David Goldberger, who was the lead attorney in the Skoking case, despite their progressive or liberal values, had defended these neutral principles of free speech. Norman Siegel, who I mentioned I met in Nat Hentoff's funeral earlier in the conversation, said mm-hmm. that if he was going to get any tattoo, it would be a tattoo across his chest that said neutral principles. And the reason that they defended the Nazis in Skokie was not because they had any sort of affinity for the Nazis, but because the same law rule in Skokie that was being used to prevent the Nazis from coming was the same sort of law and rule that was being used in the South to prevent black civil rights marchers from rallying in -hmm. Southern towns to protest segregation. Exactly. Um, So what's good for the goose is what's good for the gander. And Ira Glasser talks about how censorship is like poison gas, World War One. Uh, seems like a really good idea when you have your enemy in your sights, but then the way when then you launch it out there and the wind has a way of shifting, and it blows right back on you. Um, That's a good analogy. Yeah, I mean another uh, Robert Bolton, his famous play, A Man for All Seasons, about um, Thomas More in England, uh, has this beautiful, beautiful. Um, dialogue where Thomas More's son-in-law or would-be son-in-law at that point I believe uh, comes up to him and, and says uh, or Thomas More asks the son-in-law you know would you cut down all the laws in England to get after the devil and the son-in-law says I would cut down every law in England if it meant I after I if it meant I could get after the devil Thomas More says well okay what would you do then with all the laws being cut down when the devil turned around on you and you had nowhere to hide. And that's the point, right? These laws, the First Amendment, protects not just the devil, not just the people we hate, it protects us too. And if you cut it down, then you're losing that insurance policy that allows you to participate in our democratic process because all it then takes is someone in a position of authority to decide that they no longer want to let you speak. And it's dangerous. And I feel like younger generations, to get back to your question have lost this perspective and that's why here here first folks um fire next year a big strategic or the main strategic goal for us which i'm announcing at our 
holiday party on the 14th is going to be getting back to the basics on free speech, not just appealing to free speech, not just appealing to the First Amendment, but why do we care about these things in the first place? What is the moral case for them? You mean the philosophical argument, the, the found? Yes. Okay. That sounds fantastic. Um, I have a question about fire. The curious, how do you decide which cases to take on? Mm-hmm. And can you share one in particular that you felt was especially impactful that you, that you may have worked on or, and, or, or what was achieved in that case? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, the cases, we learn about the cases through many different means. People email us, they go to our website, thefire.org, and we've got a big button that says submit a case. They send us their cases. Uh, We respond to everyone who submits a case, even if it's just to say we're not going to take the case. Um, We take almost every case that falls within our mission on campus. Uh, We haven't gotten to a place where we have the capacity and resources to take every case that falls within our mission off campus. Although we do accept every media request, more or less, that comes our way to talk about cases that fall within our mission, to give our opinion about them. Hmm. Um, so this year, for example, Fire had 10,000 media mentions. Uh, last year, we had 4,000. So our profile has risen considerably. Wow. And it's really stretched our bandwidth. Um, and we're trying to level up to the extent we can uh, to accommodate it. But you know, right now, when I'm thinking about cases, one of the things I'm thinking about is just particularly in the campus context, is are the double standards that exist. Um, So, you know, during COVID, we had two cases in particular that make me think about the current moment. Uh, Thomas Smith, who was at the University of San Diego, had a personal blog, professor, where he was writing about the coronavirus. And he wrote about the lab lake theory, the idea that the coronavirus escaped from a lab in Wuhan and said that anyone who was swallowing China's argument that it didn't leak from the lab was swallowing a bunch of Chinese cockswaddle. And he was brought up and investigated um, for speech being discriminatory for merely saying it, saying making that argument in that way. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the country at Emerson College, you had a group of students turning point USA who were handing out stickers that read China kind of sus, sus for suspect. All they were arguing against was the Chinese Communist Party. It's very clear from their advocacy. But the president nevertheless sent an email to the entire campus community accusing them of anti-Asian hate and bias. Despite the fact that the vice president of the student group, one who was handing out those stickers, was herself Asian. Right? (laughs) And so, and you really need to reach for China's kind of sus to be anti-Asian and discriminatory. It's like a... Christopher Hitchens, we referred to him a couple times in here. He told the story of the great lexicographer, the guy who wrote the first dictionary, Samuel Johnson, uh, Englishman, waited upon by uh, the female nobility of that city after he published the dictionary. They were congratulating him. And at one point they turned to him and say, Dr. Johnson, we must congratulate you on not including any indecent words in your dictionary to which dr johnson turned to them and said well i must congratulate you for knowing where to look Hmm. right and if you understand that you kind of understand the situation for free speech in america right now where it's a lot of people are peeking over the fence posts into their neighbor's yards in order to dig 
or search for something to become offended by. Like you need, you really need to kind of like reach to argue that China kind of sus is example of anti-Asian hater bias. Um, but then you look now, and I don't draw double standards to say that, you know, speech on one side or the other should be censored. But like you look at now where you have a speech that is much more hateful, perhaps, um, or offensive happening surrounding the Israel-Hamas war, you know, on all sides. Um, could you could you imagine a college or university say, issuing the same sort of statement um, about anti-Asian hate and bias um, you know, in response to a Palestinian protest on campus that was as milquetoast as, as uh, the China kind of sus protest was? So um, you know, I'm thinking a lot about double standards right now in some of these cases. I, I see it a lot myself. I see it. I suppose um, maybe the, you know, I, my various news streams, I, I see it in some places more than I see it in others. I don't assume that it isn't in other places. But, you know, so for instance, I, I, I see a lot of the, uh, I suppose, woke progressive rhetoric that is about sh- I see it about Israel and, and Hamas. I also see it about white people uh, that these statements, I always think to myself, and of course there's there's a whole conversation to be had about like, you know, the differential power dynamics that, that people often like to use to defend these types of statements. But I see, but, and that you can't just, you know, substitute one group for another. It's not going to be the same. Nevertheless, I see statements that you could, you could never dream of saying about any other group Mm -hmm. that people are saying, and there's not even outrage about it, except perhaps from people who are so far on the right that nobody else is, you know, they end up preaching to the choir because nobody else, no one's listening when they say it. And so, or at least nobody on the left is listening is what I mean to say. And, um, you know, openly, I don't just mean critical, I mean, genocidal rhetoric. I've Mm -hmm. seen genocidal rhetoric, I've seen people talking about there was this one. I think she was a psychologist, she gave a speech at Yale, you probably are familiar with this. She talked about shooting white people having dreams about shooting white people just because they're white. And oh, no, I'm not actually familiar with that. It's not not to say it hasn't come across my desk, I might have just forgotten about it. But yeah, she just Yeah, she's like, yeah, I mean, and I just thought to myself, could you imagine any other group saying that about any other group? Just, yes, I have, you know, to, and not, I mean, in a, in a classroom environment where you are the instructor, like to say that you have these fantasies about killing a certain group of people just because they're Asian and you hate Asians. And there's this, uh, there's this great story from fires history, um, a young Americans for Freedom chapter at university or at Penn State, excuse me, was seeking to get up and running. And as part of the charter for Young Americans for Freedom, people need to ascribe to the beliefs and I believe what it's called the Sharon Statement, written by William F. Buckley, that says you believe in our inalienable God-given rights. I'm pretty milk toast from an American historical perspective, but seen as discriminatory by the student government and those who were set to approve the the authorization of the student group. And so the student group at Penn State didn't get approved. Um, because so, of the Christian aspect of it? Well, because of the Christian aspect of it and belief in God, I guess. 
So our co-founder, Alan Charles Coors, calls up the office of then President Graham Spanier, uh, no longer at Penn State, but was there then. This was in the early 2000s. Uh, isn't able to reach him because he is testifying in the Harrisburg State Legislature, defending the university's decision allow, to allow uh, student groups on campus to host a sex fair. Um, and one of the events that they were hosting at the sex fair uh, was called Cuntfest. And so the assistant to Graham Spanier wouldn't let Alan Charles Kors, our co-founder, get through. He's like, okay, I want you to do one thing for me then before we hang up. I want you to take out a piece of paper. I want you to draw a line down the middle. On one side of that line, I want you to say, write at the top, free speech protected. The other side of that line, I want you to write, not free speech, unprotected. On the free speech side, I want you to write sex fair and cunt fest. On the other side, I want you to write God-given rights. And I'd like you to hand this to Graham Spanier, or at least tell him about it. And I'd like an answer as by noon tomorrow as to whether he agrees with the, the, this delineation that is now in practice at Penn State. Turns out, you know, Graham Spanier didn't know what was going on with the student government and all that, as, you know, the heads of major research universities don't always know what exactly is going on in every corner of recess. Uh, fixes the situation and invites our Professor Coors to come speak on campus to the deans to kind of educate them about free speech. But, you know, that's the double standard, right? <laughs> that's the double standard that, Good example. you know, it's, it's not very hard to find if you look closely enough because people are too often don't have the grounding in free speech and free inquiry principles that would help them avoid it. They're just saying yes to things they like and no to things they don't. Other than supporting fire and, and listening to, so to speak, the free speech podcast, which is, which is fantastic. I'm a fan. What can listeners do to, I don't know, help nudge us in the right direction? What can, what can we do as a nation to sort of, you mentioned getting back to basics, the, the up and coming fire um, project. How do we get back to basics? What should people be thinking about if they're listening to this conversation right now and they're thinking like, yeah, we, you know, we need to, this is, we're moving the wrong direction. We need to turn things. Uh, what advice would you give? That's a great question. You know, yeah, become a member of FIRE, join an ARC free speech army. Yeah, listen to So To Speak, where we get wonky about these topics and dive into the nitty-gritty law and philosophy in cases. Um, watch Mighty Ira. Um, but I'd say more at its core, What? so we ask ourselves a lot, like, what would the world look like if FIRE achieved its mission and its vision? And I think it is, to get back to what I was saying earlier, a world in which our instinct and response to speech we dislike isn't to try and figure out a way to shut people up and punish them, but rather to engage with them and talk across the lines of difference and try and have the real lasting change to get at the roots of those dandelions by trying to change their minds, right? Living out those idioms that I mentioned earlier. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. This is a free country, teach his own. Um, living those things out in your daily life. If you, if you hear someone who like, really offends you or whose beliefs contrary to you, approach them with a sense of curiosity. Ask them questions. Why do you believe what you believe? As you did with your student, right? Like, why do you have this opinion about Hitler and, and Jews? Like, like 
it's it's a Benjamin Franklin approach. Ask people questions. They investigate their own psyche. Like that's what I think a healthy free speech culture would do. And it requires all of us living it on a day-to-day basis. Mm, That's very well said. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time, sir. Yeah, of course, David. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.